are doing an Advent series this month, and really Advent just means coming or arrival. So it's the coming and the arrival of Jesus. So a lot of churches for a lot of generations in the weeks of December leading up to Christmas just spend intentional time considering the birth of Jesus and maybe a more official version of Advent is probably going to include like some lighting of candles each week. Uh, But here at Valley, we just want to make sure that we don't let this season slip by and we don't want to miss out on what it could look like to intentionally consider what waiting for this arrival looks like. So there's the waiting and the arrival that God's people experienced looking towards the birth of Jesus, which is where we're going to go tonight. There is the arrival of Jesus, and then there's the second half, which is the still-to-come arrival of Jesus. So as we ponder, there's a really beautiful two-toned scenario going on where we can consider what it was like for God's people to wait and look for and hope for the arrival of Jesus as then at the same time we look ahead to what it looks like for us as we live here waiting for Jesus. So uh, I've been reading this book this uh, Advent season. It's by Will Willimon. He's a preacher and teacher and a professor and it's called Heaven and Earth, Advent and the Incarnation. And I just think he has a lot of great thoughts, so I'm going to quote him a lot. You'll hear a lot of um, his book tonight. But in his book, he's just reflecting on God, interacting with his people, and especially when it comes to waiting and when God makes promises. And, you know, also then helps us consider, what about our own lives? When are we waiting on the Lord? Does he hear me? And does he care? And are my prayers also being answered? So... His, uh, one of his theses is that he determines that the chief question of waiting is when. A lot of people are wrestling with waiting, and it always comes down to when. You hear people say, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. And so then he asks this question, if that's true, what's keeping God from being more active in my time, our time, right now? And so he concludes, and this is a direct quote, Therefore, a cardinal Advent virtue, so something, a virtue that's really important in Advent, is patience. The faithful willingness to wait, to not have God on demand, but to allow God to come and go as God pleases, to let Christ enter our time in Christ's own time. Now, that's really interesting to consider when we think about hoping and waiting of, Lord, I've been desiring this thing, or I feel that you have told me you would give me this thing. When and why not right now? And I think this quote is such an incredible depiction of God is going to do what God does in his own time. And then he concludes in this quote, he says, besides grace, which means gift, is not grace if it's at our command. Besides grace, meaning gift, is not grace if it's at our command. So this is the posture that I want to be in tonight, that we just rest in with open hands, open arms, that we're approaching our text, that God is good on his own, not because he does or doesn't do something for us, but that his timing is good, and when he is ready, he will make something happen. So... 
Tonight, we're going to look at two different stories of two different women who were waiting to welcome a son. I felt like it was appropriate. We're not actually going to talk about Mary tonight. That's next week. Um, But these are going to be two different women who are waiting on a son. And we have both kind of a micro and a macro pattern happening. So on the micro, these stories have their own arc, right? They are their own, they are waiting for a promised son or a desired son. And maybe that, you know, that resolution happens. Uh, Their hopes and their dreams are coming to fruition. But in a more macro sense, these stories also are kind of these examples, these types that are pointing towards another son who will be born, another mother who will be coming. And so we get to ponder, you know, how are these stories maybe helping us understand the coming of the birth of Jesus? So the two stories that we're going to look at, the first one is Sarah and Abraham, and the second one is Hannah and Elkanah. So first, before we get to our stories, we have to lay some groundwork. And anytime you got to start, you got to start at the beginning. So we're going to start at the very beginning in Genesis. So you know the story, God creates, Genesis 1, and he establishes man and woman as co-heirs in this earth. Their job is to rule, to multiply and fill the earth. They are image bearers and they have a job, they have a purpose, but the problem is that instead of trusting God's plan and submitting to his wisdom, they tried to take wisdom into their own hands. They listened to the serpent. Did God really say that? They wanted to know good and bad for themselves, and they doubted that God was good on his word. So in Genesis 3.15, God tells the serpent, and I will put an enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So this is God talking to the serpent, that we have this tension between the serpent and the woman, and the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Now this is the kind of passage that you can make yourself a cup of tea and go on a long walk and really ponder. Uh, There's a lot in here that I will not get to. Uh, But we know that there is this setup, all right? This This is the tea up. There is going to be one. The seed of the woman, the offspring, the descendant of Eve, who will destroy the serpent. And as we read these stories, these types, they start to build this image of who this one will be. So this is what I'm talking about, this micro-macro story. We have the stories of the women, but then also, in the back of our mind, we're thinking, is this it? Is this the offspring of the woman? Is this the one who will destroy the head of the serpent? Okay, I've laid enough groundwork. Now, uh, Sarah and Abraham is where we'll start. So we get to the story of Abraham. God has chosen this man to be the person that he will carry his redemptive plan through. It will be through the generations of Abraham that this offspring is going to come. But before we had Abraham, we had just Abram. And God made his promise to Abraham in to Abram. In Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, God tells him, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God promises Abram three things. 
Land, I'm going to give you land. This is the promised land that the Israelites wander in the desert before they can get to. I'm going to make you a great nation. Lots of descendants. In fact, see those stars in the sky? You can't even count them? It's going to be more than that. And frankly, I can't actually imagine hearing, hey, you're going to have a lot of kids, and it's going to be more than the stars in the sky. I would imagine that's going to be a little overwhelming. And then the third thing is I'm going to bless you. And not only am I going to bless you, but you are going to bless others. This nation that is going to come from you, Father Abraham, uh, is going to bless all people of the whole earth. So with that in mind, we get to Genesis 16. Sarai, before her name is changed to Sarah, uh, she is barren, his wife. So naturally, how is Abram supposed to have more kids than he can count when he has a wife who is barren. So she takes things into her own hands. She says, oh, I know. We have an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. Let's see if she can conceive. And she does. And Sarah is not happy about it, even though it was her idea. Desperate and bitter, she blames Abram and treats Hagar terribly. If you are interested in reading, there's a really beautiful redemption story of Hagar. She's not the villain in this story, but actually a victim to poor choices of our main characters here. So I would encourage you to read it. She goes into the desert, and the Lord finds her there. But she gives birth to Ishmael. And so in chapter 17, the Lord appears to Abram again, and he reaffirms this covenant, and he says, There will be great kings, nations coming from you. And now I'm going to call you Abraham. You're going to father many nations. This nation, they're going to be marked by circumcision. So this is the mark of the covenant. Do this. God says, I will be their God. And now your wife, we're going to call her Sarah. And I will bless her and I will give her a son. And you will name him Isaac. And Abraham laughed. He said, am I really going to have a son at 100 years old? And is my wife really going to have a son at 90 years old? He says, remember, I have another son, Ishmael. I, I did this. Can't we just have him be the covenant? God says, no. I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Sarah will give birth to him in the next year. Some more things happen with Abraham. But then in Genesis 21, verse 1, it says, the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Now that alone is just such a beautiful verse. If you're wondering uh, the promises of God and is he good on his word, the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. They named their son Isaac, which means he laughs. And Sarah's response after giving birth, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne to him a son in his old age. So just as Abraham laughed at God when he heard the plan, Sarah's laughing too. This is just how, how is this how the story ended? She just couldn't even believe it. And Isaac will father Jacob, who will father the 12 tribes of Israel. A great nation indeed. So how in this story does Sarah wait and hope for the promise from Yahweh? Well, she takes matters into her own hands, which never works out, right? That never works out when we try and do that. She realizes that there were consequences to her decisions. She was really upset that Abraham did the very thing that she told him to do. 
but it was her own doing. And we don't see her interactions with God in the waiting. I wonder if Abraham was the one who was hearing from the Lord, if there were moments that she felt, I, what about me? I, I know that there's these plans, but I haven't heard it. I'm not hearing from the Lord. And this is me sifting through something that's not in the text, so I could be wrong, but I don't think I'm too far off. I don't think a natural human response might be wondering those things. But her story ends in laughter. She didn't think this was how her story was going to end. Who would have thought that Sarah in her old age would give birth to a baby? But God's ways and God's timing are definitely different and are not our timing. All right, moving to Hannah and Elkanah. This story happens in the very beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. And Elkanah had two wives, Paniah and Hannah. Paniah was able to conceive children. Hannah was not. Sound familiar? Now, oftentimes, if a man married a woman who could not have children, he would take a second wife who could have children. But I want to be very clear that this is, while this is described in Scripture, it is always a violation of God's design of the covenantal commitment of marriage. So while you may see someone having multiple wives, God never says, this is good and you should do this. This is always a violation. And also maybe helps you to see people who are prominent people, like Abraham, (laughs) having more than one wife, mother of children, uh, seeing someone who's really prominent make very poor decisions might make you think a little more like, that's okay, I also make poor decisions sometimes. Um, So in this culture, infertility would have just been a really terrible thing to experience because the son was who carried the name. So I think in Sarah and Abraham's instance, they were perhaps more concerned with the fact that God promised, I'm going to give you a lot of descendants, and he's like, I don't have a son. Uh, But in this situation, Hannah was probably more concerned just with the fact that she couldn't conceive. And there's scripture, there's some in Deuteronomy that describes having children as a sign of God's blessing. So then in their minds, the opposite is not having children as a sign of God's curse. So they're trying to find a way to avoid a potential curse, even though that's not what God says. He never says he's going to curse them. So the story says that Pnea actually provoked Hannah to irritate her. And again, I don't think we should just assume she's the villain here. She also was in a very horrible situation. Doesn't make her actions okay, but I think it just helps us understand her a little better. But Hannah not being able to conceive absolutely wrecked her. She stopped eating. She's heartbroken. She's described as weeping and just consumed with grief. So her story doesn't start like Sarah's with any sort of promise or any sort of joy or praise. It only starts with disappointment and pain and sorrow. And in her distress, she cries out to the Lord. So in this passage we're going to read, Hannah was outside the temple and Eli, who was the priest, was there too. So in 1 Samuel 1, verse 10, In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord, and she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Side note, this was called a Nazarite vow, which was 
um, the same vow that the parents of Samson used when they dedicated him to the Lord. So if that's, you're like, what's with the hair? Good question. All right, verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Eli understands. And she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Maybe she just needed a snack. I don't know. <laughs> it's worth mentioning. I'm kidding. So Hannah pours her heart out to the Lord in total anguish. You know, she's saying, please remember me, your servant. Please give me a son. I will dedicate him to you. Her face was no longer sad. It's interesting. After these moments, it was her praying and her being encouraged by Eli that then she was no longer sad. And it just seems that being in the Lord's presence and presenting her fears and desires to him helped. And so the story ends in, uh, at least this section, in verse 19. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and they remembered her, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. So how did Hannah wait? How did she hope? Well, she was bitter, and she was desperate and devastated, consumed with grief, but she did not give up. She cried out to the Lord in faith. She brought her requests to the Lord. Have you brought your desires to the Lord? She asked the Lord, and he remembered her, and Samuel went on to be a key leader in Israel's history. So when we look at both of them, how they waited, how did they hope? Well, certainly not perfectly. <laughs> if your waiting looks like groaning and longing and despair, be encouraged. So did theirs. Sarah, I think she just didn't even believe that it was going to happen. I think that she thought this, this, these circumstances are just far too crazy. There's no way that the Lord could blow our minds like this. So then you could ask, is God telling you something big that you think there's no way? Hannah, she waited in prayer with the Lord. She hoped in her honesty with the Lord. She spoke her feelings and desires but there was no immediate change, but it was bringing those requests to the Lord that she felt that difference. So what emotions do you need to bring to the Lord? Are you angry, grateful, anxious, or excited, dissatisfied, raw, numb, tired, uncertain? How are you struggling? And how are you trying to muscle through your situation? How can you bring all of those feelings, however big they are, to God, to your Father who loves you? So I don't know what is burdening you tonight. I don't know what child it is you're waiting on. It could be a literal child. It could be a spouse. 
a dream that hasn't come to fruition or came to fruition and changed. It could be not being in a career or a job that you're passionate about, feeling hopeless in this climate with your finances, dreaming of things you could have done or wanted to do but now can't and you're just trying to make your circumstances and ends meet or you're towards the end of your career looking to an, into retirement, unsure of what the next step is. Um, maybe it's something even beyond yourself, but just hoping for healing of someone who's sick or dying, hoping that an unsaved family member would come to know the Lord, hope in your own spiritual life that you would just be further along maybe, whatever that means to you, uh, in your spiritual walk with the Lord or just in a different place than you are. It's important, I think, to recognize the disappointment that when you're faced with a barrier or burden, a situation that just feels too impossible to move forward, it's easy to just think it's not going to work out and I just, I don't even know what to do. I can't move on from here. Um, these stories are not free from disappointment and pain. But, like I said, if you're in that place, you're in good company and the Lord does not want to leave you there. And back to Will Willimon's book, uh, when it feels like God is just taking a sweet time, he has something to say about that. He says, maybe God takes God's time in order to give us more time. By not shaking the heavens a few decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are given more time to come to terms with Jesus and to allow Jesus to come to terms with us. Jesus commanded his followers, us, to go into all the world teaching and baptizing all nations, to be shining lights in the world, demonstrating to the world what God can do when ordinary people obey Jesus, showing everybody everywhere the truth about God. We've needed more time than 2,000 years to be obedient and are still not there yet. Thanks be to God, there's still time. Looks like maybe we need a little bit more time than we realized. Finally, he says, what if God pulled the plug 2,000 years ago? No Mother Teresa, no Martin Luther King Jr., no St. Francis of Assisi, no Bono, no you, no me. God hasn't done with you yet. Even when we're given so much time, we often waste it. He says, look, we got the Ten Commandments, and we immediately broke them. Prophets spoke, and we failed to heed their words. He even says we were offered God's own son, and we crucified Jesus. He again, quote, yet even when we nailed the Son of God to a cross, this long-suffering, patient God looks down upon us, wasting our time, and says, I love you still. In the meanwhile, there is yet time for you to learn to love the God who so eternally loves you. Are you willing to let him, let him develop your story with some more time? The author of Hebrews in chapter 10 has a lot to say about waiting to, but I'll just read one verse. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Around that verse, you know, uh, the author of Hebrews is talking about how you can have confidence to draw near to the Lord because of the blood of Jesus. And so then because of that, you can hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Why can we hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess? Because he who promised is faithful. 
And the passage ends with, then spur one another on to love and good deeds. Encourage one another, remind one another of the hope that we have when you're feeling down that there is something worth putting your hope in. Friends, I don't know what it is that you're waiting on tonight, and I don't know what you're working through right now. It could be a promise or a hope which just feels too big to carry, or maybe you're just growing weary from waiting. But my encouragement is keep hoping. He who promised is faithful. We can be a people of hope. There are generations and generations of people before us who wrestled and waited and hoped in the good news with the stories that we even read tonight, they hadn't even seen Jesus being born yet. (laughs) That the ultimate hope was going to be born the savior of the world. So we wait patiently and earnestly with hope tonight. You guys can close your eyes and I'm just gonna read a psalm for us as we close. Psalm 34, verses four and five says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Father, we are so grateful for you and the character of who you are, that you are so faithful to us that we do not have to hope in vain. I'm so grateful that we can read stories of women before us and husbands before us as well who just truly in desperation look to you, clinging to whatever they could, believing in you that you still had a purpose in their life. Lord, and I'm so grateful that as we continue to hear the story of Jesus this Advent season, that we will see that even the smallest glimmer of hope is enough for when Jesus comes, the beauty and the glory that we will see. And Father, now that we get to experience this, I ask that we can just sit here tonight in this beauty, grateful that we have a good God to turn to, that all of our circumstances can be given to you the good, the bad, the ugly, the ones we're embarrassed or ashamed of. Father, thank you that your love just pours into all of the parts of us that we need. We thank you for your grace. Pray these things in your name. Amen.